Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would, by the revelation of Scripture, by the revelation of yourself and of your redemption in Jesus Christ, that you would strengthen our hearts by faith, that you would, Holy Spirit, be our teacher, to show us with spiritual perception and understanding the very meaning of the words and the truths that we have just sung, that we've just read, that we've just prayed. Particularly that we are in you, O Christ, and we will forever delight and know the fullness of what that means in eternity when it's the truth of it and the reality of it will be on full and glorious display. It captures our imagination, it thrills our heart, and we pray that to that end you would strengthen our hope and give us an even greater sense of this promise that we have in you to be with you forever and know the fullness of our redemption. And to that end, we pray in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Again, we come to this great picture of that future day and that future time when we will leave this world and be with Christ. This is, of course, speaking of those who came out of the great tribulation, and yet the description of what they enjoy in the presence of God is equal to what all who die in Christ enjoy now, what we will when we're with the Lord if we should go to be with him before he returns, and it is itself a taste of the great and glorious culmination of all things, all of God's created purposes that will end in the new heavens and the new earth. So let's begin by reading the passage once more. Beginning in verse 9, we'll read down to verse 17. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will no longer, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, this is a precious picture of those who are before the throne of God, those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, those who are 
truly his and belong to him. These who out, came out of the great tribulation, which are described later, who were faithful to the end, they did not love their life even unto death. And having not loved their life even unto death, now step into the full expression Though yet awaiting an even fuller expression, I should say, at the end of the age. But walk into and enter into a fuller expression of that glorious life which they had received in Christ. Which far outshined anything that was given up in this world. Now as we've been considering this, we last week stopped with that great statement in the beginning of verse 17. That the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And we noted that not only will this entrance into his presence be a relief from all of the physical suffering that they endured because of their faithfulness to Christ, that's what he listed previously in verse 16, but also they enter into this delightful expression of the relationship of Christ in its in fuller measure of Christ who is the shepherd. We noted that God is the shepherd of his people throughout scripture and what a precious picture that that is of his care, of his love, and of his protection. And that with the appearance of Christ, that imagery takes on this new and glorious picture of Christ as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and who calls his sheep to his own, to himself, and who guards them and protects them and cares for them as the Son of God in flesh. And that great picture of this merciful and compassionate ministry of Christ the shepherd is captured in David as he said in that wonderful psalm, Psalm 23, 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me besides waters of rest. He restores my soul. And here is a glorious picture of that same kindness and compassion of the Lord leading his people to eternal rest in the imagery of these who are before the throne. He says, he is the, their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life or waters of life. I pray that as we go through this, the Spirit may give us understanding of this glorious hope that we have. Let's consider it a bit closely. Let's first consider just what the passage says. What the passage says. He says that he, the shepherd, will lead them to the waters of life, to the waters of life. What does it mean to say that he will lead them? It means that he will guide them and direct them to a place of eternal rest and delight. The idea of leading has just that idea of guiding and directing, as one lexicon put it, with the implication of making certain that people reach an appropriate destination. It's a term used actually very rarely in its verb form anyway in the New Testament, It speaks of the Holy Spirit who will guide, who will lead the apostles into all truth, the promise that Jesus made to them in John 16, 13. It's inherent or it's in part of the question of the eunuch who was questioned by Philip about whether he understood what he was reading and the eunuch replied, well, how could I unless someone guides me? Again, that idea of leading, that idea of guiding That idea of moving in a direction to a destination, whether it be understanding, whether it be a location, or whatever. But here, when we have this picture and this imagery, 
We shouldn't think in terms of spatial terms then, as of traveling. We shouldn't think of it in the, as the, the idea that in heaven Christ is a shepherd and we will move from this location to this location, from where we are over to where there are springs, as if there were aimless wandering outside of that. That's not the idea of the picture here. Rather, it is this sense that he is always drawing internally his people to drink deeply from the spiritual delights of fellowship with him and through him with the Father and the Spirit. And that comes out in where he leads them to, which is the second part to notice, where the shepherd leads. It says he leads them then to the springs of the water, or waters, more accurately, of life. Now there are just four things to observe. One, the term life is actually placed first in this phrase, which gives it emphasis. His emphasis here is on life, on life. And then the imagery, secondly, of the waters or springs of waters has the idea of an unending and ever-flowing supply. If you've ever been to a spring, I grew up in Florida, so we had them there. It's just water that comes up continually out of the ground, continually out of the ground. That's the idea here. Now, just as a side note, some of you, particularly those who have the ESV, have the translation living waters, living waters rather than the waters of life. Uh, that doesn't essentially change the meaning, but it is a noun here, not a participle that's used for, for those who care about that. And so waters of life is a better translation, which as it is in the New American Standard. Note next here, then, it's the plural. He uses a plural. Some of you may have a note if it's not in the translation itself off to the side. It's waters of life. It's or springs of waters. Springs of waters. And, and the idea of the plural most likely has the idea of abundance and possibly even the idea of variety. There's a sense of fullness in the language here. And notice, fourthly, that it is the shepherd who leads them there personally. It is the shepherd who leads them there personally. So this is a glorious picture of this loving care of the Lord Jesus Christ drawing continually his people to a place of abundance, to a place of rest, to a place of delights, and a place of fullness. Now let's take this a bit further. What else is included in the imagery here? Well, the imagery is common in Scripture, and particularly that idea of thirst and water is used in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible to speak of spiritual desire and spiritual satisfaction. Let me take you just to a couple of places. You don't have to turn there, but you're familiar with these. Psalm 42. Psalm 42, the psalmist says this, As a deer pants for water, for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The idea there is of an animal or a deer as they might be in the wilderness Longing for a drink comes upon a stream, a stream where they want to satisfy all of their longings and their thirst. And so it is for the soul of the saint who pants after God. And in that context, particularly when there is a sense of distance from God and it, he wants restoration, he wants refreshment, he wants to know once again what he had before and is not experiencing at that moment. The same idea is picked up in Psalm 63, verse 1. He says, the psalmist, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, and my flesh yearns for you in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. He goes on to say, I have seen you in the sanctuary, 
to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Here in that imagery of thirsting, that imagery of desiring relief, a drink from the drought of the glory of God, from the streams and the delights of the glory of God's presence. Let me give you just a couple more to illustrate this. Psalm 36, speaking of the abundance of God and the fullness of those who know him in this covenant relationship. He says in verse 8, they drink their... Well, verse 7, he says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. O continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Place God is in his house, that very symbol and emblem of his covenant relationship and his loving kindness and his faithfulness is when grasped by faith of the believing, in that sense believing Israelite and Jew, it was a place of internal delight. Longing, spiritual satisfaction. It's in a sense what the psalmist in Psalm 84 was saying. He longed to be in the house of God. He was jealous of the bird that could make its nest in the temple of God because there was a nearness to God's presence that his soul longed for and was satisfied only in God's presence. One more, Psalm 46. Verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of of the Most High. Speaking there of, again of this unending spiritual delight in the presence of God. So here is then this idea of thirst and this idea of waters of a soul made alive to God that longs for Him and can only be satisfied with inner joy and contentment when there is that inner sense of being in right relationship with Him and having spiritual perception of Him. To be out of relationship with Him, to have His glory hidden from the eyes of the heart then is a great distress to those who have come to taste of His glory. To be absent from that is produces only a deep longing of the soul. Now this is in contrast, as a side note here, to idolatry, which as is at its heart a rejection of this spiritual life is an exchange of the life of God for the emptiness of the world. This is picked up in Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God is the source in this picture of an ever-flowing fountain of the river of delights, and idolatry is a rejection of that fountain, which is a rejection of God himself, in whom all these delights are to be found. It is, in essence, to believe the lie in the garden and the deceit of our lust, which is to say that to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is better than to delight in the garden all around and the tree of life, where God's blessing lies So the contrast is that of believing God's promises and knowing the endless delights of his nearness and blessing and the empty promises of sin that bring in the end only misery and judgment. We're also familiar with this imagery through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll remember in his conversation with the woman at the well, he uses these same pictures. Let me read to you. 
Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He goes on later to say, Everyone who drinks of this water, that is of the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus now connects this imagery, this delight of God, this spiritual delight of God's presence this knowledge of God that is the sole satisfaction of the soul, that is the very object of those who know him, of their love and their affections. He attaches it to himself, a gift that he will give. And then later, he brings in the specific ministry of the Holy Spirit through whom this will come. Again, let me just read to you familiar words. John chapter 7. He says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And there, of course, he is speaking then of this future ministry of the Holy Spirit that will be active and known to those who believe in Christ, who partake of his life, and who know the fullness and the blessings of the new covenant. This is, of course, then, brings us, or this brings us to consider the issue of eternal life, of eternal life. And let's consider this then a bit more. And we must consider it, and it's more than a definition, because eternal life is then the very essence and the very reality of salvation. It is the very thing offered to sinful humanity. It is the very thing, then, that Jesus came to give is eternal life, this life. He suffered and rose to give to his people this life. This life is the promise that was the hope of all of God's people throughout all of the ages. And it's vital to understand this as well, because not to have life is to abide then in spiritual death and to be in the condition that Scripture says perishing. It is to be perishing. That is the entire world outside of Jesus Christ. That is the entire world of those who have not believed in Christ. It is how we all come into this world. Let me just remind you, by contrast, of some of these statements. We often forget this in that well-known statement, but often misused and misunderstood of John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is a great emphasis there on the love of God that is magnified in the gift of God, which is of his only begotten Son, which is of the highest and most glorious and majestic value to accomplish salvation and to rescue from perishing. Of course, he goes on after that to say, the one who has not believed in him has been judged already, is in a state of perishing. And so it is to those to whom the gospel goes out when it is met with unbelief. In John, 2 Corinthians 3, or chapter 2, excuse me, Paul says these words. 
But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests to us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma of death to death and to the other aroma of life to life. And he was adequate for these things. He goes on to describe those who are perishing in this way. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in case, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So the contrast to having eternal life is not merely to miss out on something good. It is to abide in what scripture describes as death and spiritual death. It is to be in a condition of perishing. What does it look like to be in a condition of perishing? Well, he describes that, again, in familiar words that we must consider in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, speaking of spiritual death, it is to live according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. It is to indulge in the desires of the lust of the flesh, indulge in the desires of of the flesh and of the mind, and to be by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So what then does it look like to be dead and to be perishing, to not have eternal life? It means simply to have no interest in Christ. It means to be bound to this world. It means to not acknowledge God, or it means someone who does acknowledge God and is interested in religion, and a true understanding, but without a true understanding of the gospel. Resting in morality, spirituality, or religious devotion. In the context of Revelation, it's those who go along with the course of this world, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, that will be manifest in the kingdom of Antichrist. That's where this crowd has come out from. It is then to say those who are perishing, those who are outside of eternal life, are those who gladly go along with the morality of the kingdom of the Antichrist. He says, take this image and worship me, and you'll be able to buy and sell. And so they say, well, that makes sense. I need to eat. I need to live. I'll take the image of the beast, and I will buy and sell, and I will live comfortably. It is to take on the morality of the kingdom, and the kingdom, which is to live according to lust. And so those who are outside of this glorious picture are described in 21.8 of Revelation, that's being cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. So this eternal life, then, is of the very essence of salvation. And to not have this eternal life is to be in a condition of perishing. It is to be outside of Christ. It is to be those who are comfortable in the course of this world, the morality of this world, the thinking of this world, the ideology of this world, without reference to God and without reference to Christ. But still then, what is this eternal life then? Well, let me suggest it might help to think of what it's not. Eternal life does not speak of mere duration. It's not merely living forever in a conscious state, not even merely living forever in a conscious state bound to a body. Every person will live forever in that sense. Everybody will live forever. Every human being, every image bearer 
will have life eternal in the sense of existence and conscious existence and a real interaction with their environment and the world around them. Every individual will experience that. Again, let me just remind you of a couple of passages. In John chapter 5, Jesus says this, verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. He says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, laying these two realities side by side in verse 46, he says, so excuse me, verse 45, Excuse me, verse 41. I'll get there. He says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and for his angels. And then in verse 46, These go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So both the righteous and the unrighteous, the believing and the unbelieving, the regenerate and the unregenerate, will have eternal conscious existence in a physical body, will live forever in that sense. So that's not what he's talking about here with eternal life. Eternal life is something that stands in contrast to mere existence that will be experienced by those who eventually will be in the lake of fire. These are those who will be forever in the presence of God. So then what is it? What does it consist of? How is it gained? How is it known? Well, first then, we want to acknowledge that this eternal life is something that is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. It's not something that can be attained by mere human action or human effort. And so he says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it isn't something that you can earn by merit. It isn't something that can be gained by strenuous effort, by devotion, whether to good causes or anything else. That is the vanity of all religion outside of Christ, is that this life, eternal life, future life, can be gained by, by doing something. But death cannot produce life. If life is to come to what is dead, it must come from outside. And so it is a gift of God. It is a gift of God that is in Christ Jesus the Lord. What else can we just say by way of introduction to that? It's bound then by union with Christ. It's something that's found only in Christ as a gift, and it comes through a union with him. And it stands in contrast to the future expectation of those outside of him, and it is a future of blessing, being rescued and reconciled to God. Rescued by God and reconciled to him. So he says this in Romans chapter 5. Just listen, I'm going to bounce around for just a bit. He says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He goes on to say in verse 17, For if by transgression of the one, speaking of Adam, death reigned through the one, much more than those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So this life then is a gift from God. It's a gift from God that's found only in Christ. And in Christ, it is marked by a possession of his life and this life that is manifest in righteousness. In righteousness. 
So it's something that God must give. But what is the thing itself? What is the thing itself? Let me begin answering that by noting that it's something that Jesus had in himself. Eternal life is something that was manifest in Jesus. It's what we share in in Christ. In Christ. It's something that he has in himself as the incarnate son of God. In John 5.26, he says this, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. That is a divine statement. It is to say that God depends on nothing outside of himself for his life and for his existence. And Christ himself, in his divine nature, shares that with the Father, eternally sharing that with the Father as something that he has in himself. We get a hint of that at the very beginning of the gospel, and we'll unfold to what this means in just a bit. When it says at the very beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that, came in, that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. The life is manifest in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So this life is something that Jesus then has in himself that he shares with God. It's something that was manifest in his own life in the world. It was something that was put on display for all to see. So then what is this life? What is this eternal life? This life is the existence that Jesus as the eternal Son of God, has always shared with the Father, by the Spirit and with the Spirit, an intimate relationship and love. That was what was manifest. That is what is extended. It is what Jesus displayed in his life and his intimate fellowship with the Father in prayer and obedience and joy and contentment and delight and in glorifying him. It is the very essence of what eternal life is, then, is to share in the Son's eternal intimate fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. That is the life that was put on display. Listen to how Jesus put it in John 17. Even as you have given, gave him authority over all flesh to all that whom you have given to him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is a knowing of God. This is a knowing of God that Jesus himself had with the Father. It is a knowing of God which is of intimate relationship. It is the life of God in which he relates to himself in eternal love and delight and joy and contentment and satisfaction and blessing. And it is that life in the Son that is then extended to the world. To have the life of Christ, to participate in eternal life, is to come and be brought into what God has in himself and has eternally enjoyed in himself. What Christ has by nature, he extends to us by grace. It's intimacy. 
Listen to some other ways that Jesus described this in John chapter 10, for example. He said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and the word here of know is of relationship, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. He's saying you enter in then to a knowledge and experiential of vital relationship with Christ as the Son of God that is parallel and equal to the kind of vital and intimate relationship that he enjoys with the Father. It's of the same nature, and it's extended through the Son. Or listen to how he puts it this way. After the coming of the Spirit, he gives this promise. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode in him. You could think of that as our dwelling place, He and the Father. Again, it describes an experience of knowing Him, of feeding on Him by faith, of the inner working of the life-giving Spirit who enables the soul to see, hear, taste, spiritually perceive, and delight in God as He's revealed in Christ. This is throughout Scripture, but particularly the Gospel of John as he describes this kind of relationship. Again, I just remind you of some familiar statements. What did Jesus say to the crowd, this religious crowd who yet were strangers to God and the life of God? He says to them in John chapter 6 that they are not to work for the food that perishes, but that he himself but for the food that endures to eternal life. And this is in Jesus. He says, Moses, who's given you the bread out of heaven, but my Father is the one who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread out of heaven is that which comes down of heaven and gives life to the world. They said, give us this bread. He says, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He's talking about something that happens in the soul of man. In the very life of man, this life is something that reaches down and is of the very essence of our bearing the image of God, its very end and purpose, which is to be then in relationship with him. It's experiential. Listen to how he describes this. I am the living bread, he said in verse 51, that came down to heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, and the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. What does he mean? He's already described it. He's building on the metaphor there. He says, I am the bread. He who believes in me to eat and to drink his flesh and his blood is to believe in him experientially knowing this life-giving power that is in him and entering into this life-giving relationship with the Father through him. Listen to how he says it later in verse 57 then. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, that is, think, believes in me, he also will live because of me. You see it? The life of the Father is in the life of the Son. Those who are joined to the Son enjoy this life that the Son and the Father have within themselves. And yet we enjoy it in the Son. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. 
Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now you'll remember then what we noted along that line. That's part of the promise that Jesus said in John chapter 11. We've mentioned it before, isn't it? He who believes in me, what did he say? Will never die. Well, what do you mean you'll never die? It means this unbroken, there will be an unbroken experience of this life-giving relationship with the Father through the Son that even physical death cannot break. It's merely a passing of one state of experience of this life into a greater state of experience of that life. You'll never die. Let me just point you to a couple more. In 1 John, the epistle, he unfolds this marvelously. Consider these words in light of what's just been said. In verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Hear this. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What is the life that was manifested? What is eternal life that was with the Father? How could that life be manifested? What is it that God extends to his people? What is it that they are to experience? What is it that marks the possession of this life? Again, it's this deep intimacy. How does he describe it? He says, so what we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you, that is this eternal life, so that you may have what? Fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It is to enter into this life. It is to enter into this intimate fellowship, this intimate relationship with God through the Son. And it is in the Son. In 5.11 he says this, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So what then does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have faith in Christ and the life of God in you? It is then to live in a real experiential, vital fellowship with the Father and with the Son, and it's what is shared by all believers who have the Spirit of God. It is a real, vital fellowship in the inner life of a believer out of which all of life is lived. That's what it is to have eternal life. It's not merely to have the promise that you'll live forever in happiness. It is to have the very life of God himself. It is to have in yourself a very participation in the life of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So then what are some of the ways then that John describes that? Let me just mention a couple quickly. If he wrote these things to know that you have eternal life, what then does this life look like? Well, 
It looks like first an inner attitude that is compelled and prompted to obedience. Do you want to know if you're a believer? Do you have as a basic disposition, as a basic orientation or disposition and a basic orientation of your life and your inner person to obey God, to walk with Christ? Does that define you? When you sin, is that sin bothersome because it conflicts with who you are at the most basic level of your identity and inner experience? And it makes you miserable. So this is what he says. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him, that is if we have this fellowship that is a part of the possession of eternal life in the Son, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. He who abides in him ought to walk himself in the same manner in which he walked. In other words, it should demonstrate the same things that were evident in the life of Christ. It is to share in his nature. If you know that he is righteous, he says in verse 29 of chapter 2, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. He says in chapter 3, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. What he means then is that no one who has this eternal life in the presence of the Spirit can continue in a pattern of sin in this world without misery or the discipline of God. Because you've been born again, you can't do it. It can't happen. So the first evidence of this is that there is an inner attitude that desires conformity and is prompted to, to, to the nature of God and is prompted to him in obedience. It is an inner love. Secondly, an inner love for Christians that comes from a true taste of God's love. How do you know if you have eternal life? And this is going to point us to the end of the life that we'll enjoy with him forever. There is then a true love for other believers. There's a true love for other believers. Listen to how he says it this way. We know that we have passed out of death into life, out of spiritual death into spiritual life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. He says the same thing in verse 16. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. Or he says it in this way, the one who does not love does not know God and does not have eternal life, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. So how do we know that we have eternal life? That there is a change that has taken place in you, that at the deepest part of who you are, there is an orientation, a dispensation towards a disposition towards obedience. There is a desire to walk in fellowship with God, and that knowing that walk in fellowship with God is out of conforming to his commands, following him in righteousness, 
doing what he says. It means then that there is a particular love that you have for other believers. It means that when you meet a Christian and you're in the church and you're in the fellowship and the company of believers, there is a connection, a unity, an understanding, a bond that you have that is supernatural by the Spirit of God that is palpable, felt, vital, experiential, that is unique, that you do not experience with anybody else that is not a believer. That's what it means. There is a love for the body of Christ. It's what we picture in the Lord's table every week. So if your feelings, your, your inner life is as complete and whole and comfortable in the company of unbelievers whom we are to love and to care for and witness to, but if you do in their fellowship enjoy exactly what you can enjoy in the church, then that's not a good sign. It's actually a frightening sign that should be considered. And if those things, it's not one or the other, these things are together. Because again, this is eternal life. It's to share in the life of God. Jesus himself said, he was praying these things to the Father in John 17. Not for the world do I pray these things, but for those who were given to him. His church, his children. Thirdly, and this is lastly, how then do we know that we have this eternal life? It means then that there is a true spiritual perception of the voice of Christ in Scripture. Scripture as the Word of God. If you have eternal life, there is a taste in the ring of truth. There is, a, there is an inner sense and confidence of the reality of the truthfulness of Scripture that evaluates everything else. So listen to how he says it in 1 John. He says, I have not written to you, and this is in the context of those who fell into error by leaving the truth. He says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. He says later, in relation to the spirit of Antichrist, which he says is already in the world, he says this, we are from God, and he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. By this we know those who have eternal life and those who abide in eternal death. That there is in Scripture, when you open it, a sense of the reality of God and of truth and of the presence of God that you believe that it has authority, that it is sufficient, that it actually ministers to you, that when you read it, it conforms to what your desires actually are and it begins to shape the way you think. It connects and tells you what you want to do. It defines life and reality. It gives you promises that are the deepest longing of your soul. In other words, in Scripture, you hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. You hear His Word. That's what it means to have eternal life. That you understand it, that you get it, that you read scripture and you go, yes, God is actually speaking here. And while there's advantage in knowing ways to defend scripture, you don't depend on those defenses. 
You read it and you know because you have the testimony of the Spirit in you. To use the language of John, you have his anointing. You have his seed which abides in you. And so that you read scripture, if you have come to Christ, you know that experience. You read the word and the word became alive and all of a sudden it became the longing of your soul. Some were saved and couldn't wait to run and read the Bible. You didn't get bored with it. You read it and you said, yes, God is speaking to me here. He's speaking in a way that I want to learn from him. I want to listen to him. It is, it is the very life beat of the heart of a believer. It means when they sin, they run to Scripture. Why? Because there his promises are laid out of forgiveness, the work of Christ. They're pointed to him. When there's discouragement in this world and the way it's going, you run to Scripture and you realize there's a kingdom that's coming that will never fail, and the true king is going to return for his people. When you wonder about why those in your family don't believe, you go to Scripture, and it informs you, and it tells you, because God hasn't opened their eyes, they abide in spiritual death, and you pray for them, and you witness for them. If you want to know how to be an employee, you want to know how to be a husband, you want to know how to be a godly child, you want to know how to be a neighbor, you want to know how to be a Christian, your heart is drawn to Scripture, because God speaks there, and he tells you. And when someone who speaks from the spirit of Antichrist comes, you go, oh, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't comport. That doesn't sit right. And you go to Scripture and you search and you say, no, it's not right. Why? Because it doesn't conform to the Word of God. And this is the truth. This is what it means to have eternal life. It's what we have now by the Spirit in part, but we will have in full So when he says here that the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to the springs of the water of life, it is to say that in his presence, he is continually as our shepherd moving and leading us to those true delights of our soul and fellowship with him and every spiritual delight, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which is ours in Christ Jesus, is known in full and he's continually taking us to that place of joy and satisfaction, delight, obedience, holiness, everything that the heart of the true child of God longs for here and now. And this satisfaction then is bound to our union with Christ by the Spirit, our nearness and our oneness with Him. So what does the Christian want? What does the regenerate heart long for? What does the one who has eternal life truly want? God Himself. Christ Himself. Nearness to Him. Fellowship to Him. When my days are gone and my heart is failing... He'll carry me along through death's unveiling. Earth's struggles overcome. Heaven's joys just begun. To search Christ's deaths and ever to follow. It's from him, the good shepherd of my soul. And so he leads his people to springs of water. He does it now, even as he promised the woman at the well. The question is, is do you know this life? Do you have this life in you? Can you say that? Can you say that, yes, I sin, yes, I struggle with sin, but I hate that sin. 
It is a bother to me. It is my greatest bother in this world. If I could lose one thing in this world, I wouldn't mind my wealth, I wouldn't mind my riches, but I could get rid of sin. And I long for heaven because that will be the reality. Do you have an inner love for Christians so that part of heaven and the delight of this very picture he gives is to say, not only will I be with Christ, but I will be with his people who are my delight. They're my joy. They're the ones in whom I find spiritual strength and connection and refuge. And I'll get to spend eternity with my brothers and with my sisters, and we will worship the Lord together. Do you hear the singing of the songs and is your mind and your heart transported to that future day when you'll be singing with all of the saints and the angels around the throne and you say, These, this is my delight. These people are my delight. This experience is my delight. It's what I want. That's eternal life. To say I have a true experience and perception of Scripture and His Word, that I ever want to hear my shepherd speak to me and follow him and to know him more and more and more and more. And the idea and the prospect of an eternity of only discovering more and greater delights of Christ is not something that's boring. It's something that is exciting and thrilling to the soul. That's eternal life. That's what it means to be led by the Good Shepherd to the springs of the waters of life forever. It's what we have a foretaste of here. It's a part of that abundant life that we have now. It's what we have in experience in prayer. It's what we have and we experience in time in his word. It's what we have and experience when we're together with his people in corporate worship and outside of that. It is an ever-ending fountain of the love of God. Let me end with this as we come to the table. This is from Jonathan Edwards. He says, the fountain that supplies the joy and delight which the soul has in seeing God is infinite. The understanding may extend itself as far as it will. It doth take its flight into an endless expanse and dive into a bottomless ocean. It may discover more and more the beauty and loveliness of God, but it will never exhaust the fountain. We can never, by soaring and ascending, come to the height of of the love of God. We can never by descending come to the depth of it or by measure know the length and the breadth of it. Let the thoughts and desires extend themselves as they will. Here is space enough for them in which they may expand forever. How blessed therefore are they that do see God who are come to his exhaustless fountain. After they have had the pleasure of beholding the face of God millions of ages, it will not grow a dull story. The relish of this delight will be as exquisite as ever. And for us who have light, that's what we long for and pursue. And so as we come to the table, you're asking yourself this, one, do I have this life? Is this true of my inner experience and my inner reality? If it's not, Christ offers it as a free gift in him by faith, by repentance, by turning to him. By asking him, by receiving the gift, by receiving Christ and taking his yoke upon you and learning from him, for he is gentle and humble in heart. If it is something that we do see, though not near to the degree that we want, then as we come to the table, we are reminded afresh that this life is ours, the table itself. We as the body of Christ is the very testimony that his spirit dwells within us. His life is within us. That there is no animal we're bringing, 
We are simply coming to remember what he has done, what he has given to us, and we ask him to refresh our hearts in it, to give us new understanding, to help us turn from the sin that dulls the spiritual perception of God and to embrace him by faith and pursue obedience and that he would help us in it. So let's pray as we come to the table and prepare to worship God in the elements. Father, thank you for this gift that you have ordained before the foundation of the world in agreement with the Son. You yourself said before the foundation of the world we were chosen, we who know you and adopted in Christ to be sons and daughters, to be sharers in the very life of the Son, which is to share in the very life and the relationship and the love and the blessing and the delightedness that you have enjoyed forever as God, as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Lord, these are not things we can understand fully. The best of our understanding is only the fringes of your ways. But we do ask you by your Spirit, as we seek to walk with you, that you would by faith, Open our eyes to see more and more of who you are, to delight in you and to know the joy of fellowship with you and to begin to understand profound realities that are beyond any human capacity to even conceive of. And as we come to this table, would you refresh in our heart the commitment to pursue you, to walk in this life and to live for you in such a way that you receive glory through our lives. And we pray this in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus who died and rose for us. Amen.